This is Competition Law with Professor Coron Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Matt Perot, former head of public policy at Facebook. One thing, for instance, that continues to baffle me is the conclusion that Google is dominant in the market for search, Facebook is dominant in the market for social networks, and apparently those two companies never compete with each other. Because in my experience at Facebook, every single engineer in the company understood that we competed with Google, and every single person who sold advertising for the company understood that we competed with Google. And that was true on the day that I started at Facebook, and it was true on the day that I left. So competition authority is repeatedly framing it in a different way, at least in terms of how I experience things from within the company, seem to really misrepresent this fundamental way that the company operated. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. Working on policy in a tech company, not least one like Facebook, must be one of the most challenging jobs there is nowadays, especially in a company taking one hit after another in the press and staring down a raft of antitrust probes and regulatory threats. Our guest today, Matt Perot, has spent the last eight years heading global policy development at Facebook, grappling with issues ranging from antitrust to human rights. Having now moved to head a centre on science and technology policy at Duke University, I had the pleasure and the privilege of a wide-ranging conversation with Matt about how he sees the challenges in tech and his hopes for continuing to make a constructive contribution, now from quite a different vantage point. We started with just what his job at Facebook entailed and how he got drawn into a role like that. So if you think of the different functions within a policy team, The majority of people sit on the lobbying or advocacy side of the house, and their job is to develop strategy and advance that strategy and have the relationships to help the company advance its policy position. My job in policy development was more as a subject matter expert, and I covered during my time at Facebook a range of different subject matters, a range of different issues. I covered law enforcement. I covered competition. I covered intellectual property, tax. When we acquired WhatsApp, I was the first person to lead the WhatsApp policy operation. Someone on my team ran the Oculus virtual reality policy operation when we acquired Oculus. We also did artificial intelligence policy work. And so the job was really to focus in each of those areas on developing subject matter expertise, thinking about the best arguments to help the company advance its position working closely with experts like you to better understand what views in the field were, and so really to develop the subject matter expertise that could enable the company to achieve what it wanted to achieve on the policy side. Right. And you were there for eight years, Matt. Things must have really changed over that period of time, just in terms of the size and the scale of the operations and the breadth of the policy subject matter you were looking at. Yep. Just give us a sense of what it was like when you started back in 2011, I think it was. 
So when I started, I think I was maybe the eighth person or so in the DC office. And we were working in a small office that I think was an office that Aaron Sorkin used in Washington when he was filming The West Wing. It was a a small office in DuPont Circle and the so-called walls didn't actually even reach the ceiling. You could sort of hear everyone's conversations. I did some of my most important initial meetings from the stairwell outside the office. And then obviously the company grew significantly throughout the world, but including in Washington. And so we moved into bigger and bigger offices over time. And I loved the feel of the company that I joined in 2011. I would say it was not really in a startup phase. We were a long way from the dorm room phase of the company, but some of the people who were there in the early years were still at the company. And I just learned an enormous amount from them. They were an extraordinary group of people who were really understood how to get a lot of things done with a limited set of resources. And that kind of perspective and that kind of skill set is not something that I had been exposed to very much in my career before then. And so it was a real period of rich learning for me at that time from people who I really respected and who I think are really the people who are responsible and in many ways for you know getting the company off the ground. So did you have much of an understanding of the technology when you joined Facebook? having come from a background of law, public policy, and political science in your student days? I didn't. And I actually remember in some of my early interviews, people said, so tell me about how you use Facebook. And I said something like, "Uh, well, I don't really use the product very much. It's a better question for my younger cousin. (laughs) And that was not a laugh line at the time, actually. Like, that was a mistake in my interview. I mean, we, at that point, and at any point, you know, it's important to hire people who understand the technology and who are close to the product and We hired, particularly, I think, in the early years, like people who really had a strong belief in the value of the technology and in what the company was trying to do from a technology perspective. And we hired people across the company who had that view. It wasn't like that was just the who we were trying to hire on the engineering side. The people we hired were people who really believed in the mission statement of the company and people who believed in what we were trying to build. And so that wasn't my strength coming in. That was something that I learned as I went along. And that was like a really wonderful part of the learning experience of the job was learning what it's like to work for a company that builds a product and puts that product out in the world. And it happened to be a product that had particularly interesting technological underpinnings and there were components of the product I never would have understood unless I got to see them up close at the company. And that was something I was really grateful for. And what attracted you to the role in the first place? So the guidance I got when I was thinking about the role was read every article you can about Facebook policy issues. And if you start reading and you get excited, then maybe this is a good role for you. And I was fascinated and I continue to be fascinated. I think every day there are, since I joined the company and probably long before, before I was closely tracking the issues, every day there are stories that are fascinating about the role of tech policy in our lives and about what tech companies are doing and about how governments are responding to tech products, about research that's happening in the academic world about tech issues. And so I really became enthralled with the substance and feel so grateful that I had an opportunity to work closely on it. It sure is a dynamic space. Yeah. And you would have gone in, I suspect, with a good feel for the relationship between the policymaking process and the political process. You were recently quoted as saying that the politicization of the issues Facebook is facing makes it really difficult to engage in robust policy dialogue and work collaboratively. And 
You refer to the fact that the policy debates are now fairly reactive and very angry. Mm-hmm. Matt, what do you think is driving the politicization and the anger towards Facebook? I don't know. I think it makes good politics right now to criticize tech companies and given the moment we're in as people are trying to differentiate themselves in the lead up to the 2020 election, good politics drives the conversation. And I also think that being critical of tech companies is good from a news perspective. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about since I left is that I think there are somewhat misaligned incentives between the policy development process at a company and what a news organization is trying to do. At a company, you're trying to develop policies that will govern billions of pieces of content that are uploaded or shared with your service each day and that go out in the world. And for any policy, there are likely to be errors. So content that your policies say should be taken down, but you inadvertently leave up or content that should stay up and you inadvertently take it down. So there are those types of errors. And then there are also things that with any policy, there can be problematic use cases or problematic examples, things that the policy doesn't cover, you wish they'd cover it, but it's difficult to develop a policy that would adequately cover everything. And so there are those two things, the things that are kind of omitted from any policy, no matter how sensible it is, and then mistakes that are made. And when you have the volume of content on your service that Facebook has or Twitter has or Google has, there are going to be a lot of things. If you're looking at mistakes or things that kind of get through the cracks in a policy, that will be a lot of content. There are a lot of things that can get through. Even a policy that I think is the right one or a policy that governs most things most effectively, and that may have advantages relative to some other policy. So each of those errors and each of those things that slips through the cracks in the policy is a potential news story, an example of something that you don't want on a tech platform that is on a tech platform, or how someone used the technology in a way that was problematic. And so that generates, I think, often a press cycle that, and I should say, like, I'm not trying to be critical of newspapers, critical of journalists for reporting in that way. That is the incentive structure that I think makes sense in the news industry. You're reporting on news and news is individual events, including bad problematic pieces of content or policies that enable some use cases that some people think are problematic. That is news. And when tech companies try to respond to that by shifting their policies to account for those individual things that get through, I think often it can result in changing policies in ways that are probably suboptimal. And so I think there is this misalignment between the policy development process and the news cycle that leads to pressure to change policies in ways that probably are not ideal. So as you say, in the news cycle, there does appear inevitably to be sensationalization of these types of errors. But when you get behind closed doors as someone like you would have with policymakers and regulators, and you're able to explain how the mistakes might have come about and how policies might be adapted in the future to prevent their occurrence, did you find there was a greater level of tolerance and understanding in the more closed forums? Yeah, I think closed forums tend to often be more productive. Having a constructive conversation in a closed forum doesn't mean that there will also be an unproductive public one that follows. But I do find that when the spotlights aren't on, that often you can achieve more in terms of figuring out how to address concerns that exist and how to do it in a productive way. So Matt, coming back to 
what you were saying about your excitement at the vision of Facebook when you first joined. In your recent testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, you described the company as an American success story. Mm -hmm. And yet some might say it's gone from being a success story to now something of a pariah, if that's not too strong a word. I mean, to the extent you're prepared to acknowledge there's been a real shift in the way in which the company's perceived, what would you put that down to? I continue to think it has to do with the challenge of producing a new technology and dealing with the consequences of that, like dealing with in a real way what are downsides of a new thing that you're still in the process of understanding. And I think user-generated content platforms like Facebook, but also like Twitter and YouTube and others, they are not newspapers. So I have never really understood why people say that just because there's news in Facebook, that Facebook is like a newspaper. It's, it's very different. Newspapers are not user-generated content. They're content generated by journalists who are hired by the newspaper to write pieces. And even though Facebook has content policies, those are designed to figure out what are the things that you need to remove from the service to facilitate the company achieving its mission. That's very different than an editorial board, which is making decisions about what gets in a newspaper. They're fundamentally very, very different types of platforms. And a user-generated platform, I think, is likely to come with many of the challenges that exist in humanity. There are, are obviously like lots of types of content, lots of individual pieces of content, there are photos, there are videos that are deeply problematic. And people say things that are hateful and hurtful and untrue, and that's humanity. And I think that's the nature of a user-generated content platform. I think there are things that you can do, and I think all the big tech companies have taken various steps to try to combat some of the downsides, but the downsides exist. And I think there was a lot of focus on the opportunity before 2016. And since 2016, there has been a lot of focus on the downsides. I really do believe, and there are probably smarter academics, maybe like you out in the world, maybe others who can do the empirical research to try to understand whether the current narrative around tech is overstating costs and understating benefits. I believe that it is. It might be that other people would argue that the benefits continue to be overstated and the costs continue to be understated. I just don't really believe that that's true. And so I think in a world where there's a dialogue that is consistently overstating costs and understating benefits, I think there are a range of policy solutions that come on the table that I think really would be problematic for people. I think they would make tech services worse. And I think they would lead to a whole bunch of unintended consequences that would be problematic. Speaking about humanity and trying to connect humanity through a user-generated content platform. Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech recently at Georgetown where he spoke about the underlying pillars of Facebook as being more voice for more people and with it more inclusion. You'll be aware there was a range of responses to that speech, not all favourable. So that prompts me to ask, From the point of view of someone like yourself, who's been in the position of advising corporate leaders about how they give these speeches, if they give them at all, I mean, how do you advise them when it's a kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of scenario? Anyway you cut it, you're going to be criticized. So that's a really difficult question, and I don't think there's a perfect answer. I think often people want tech companies to say more, to say more about the rationale behind their policies, 
to explain them in more detail and to do it in ways that are easier to understand for more people. And then when companies speak, they're often criticized. And so it's hard to know what approach to take. I also think there's a dynamic where there are some things that people don't trust tech companies to say that it would be better if other people, not the companies themselves, could make the points. And I think that may have been true in some of the things that Mark Zuckerberg talked about at Georgetown. I think the content of the speech, or at least certain components of the content of the speech, are things that a range of people would say. I think it's very important right now to emphasize the value of speech. I think that there are many people throughout the world, but now increasingly in the U.S., which has a very strong First Amendment tradition. There are many people who are very critical of core fundamental American values around free speech and values that have been part of the American legal system for hundreds of years. I'm not saying that those values should never be questioned or that first American jurisprudence should never be questioned, but I think it is important to speak to those values and someone should speak to them. And I think the question is in the absence of Facebook doing it, in the absence of Mark Zuckerberg doing it, who will? And since I joined Duke about a month ago, to start a center on science and technology policy and to teach at the policy school. And one thing I've noticed from rooms that I've been in, certainly at Duke, but not just at Duke and in other places as well, is when companies aren't in the room, I think there are important viewpoints sometimes that aren't represented. And it can be easy for people to sort of all talk to each other based on news that they've read most recently or based on the most recent critique. And those viewpoints are valid and are important parts of the conversation. But I think People who build products and people who run a business to sell those products, I think they have an important perspective that needs to be part of the conversation. One thing that struck me uh, about Mark's speech was that he spoke with this great animation and optimism about Facebook's role in promoting voice and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to put that together with the privacy-focused vision for social networking that was released in March by the company, mm-hmm. where it was said that the company is going to put privacy first and facilitate more private conversations, that it was going to now be the digital equivalent of the living room rather than the town square. I mean, is it trying to do both, be the town square and the living room? I don't think it's necessarily contradictory to try to do both. I think that private conversations are an important form of expression too, and that facilitating secure, strong, private conversations, spaces for people to be private but communicate, that seems like an important form of expression that we would want to promote and ensure that there are tech companies building products to do that very effectively. And I think at the same time, you also want to facilitate broader types of sharing that enable people to communicate on a broader level. And I think some of the most aggressive competition in the tech sector right now, like when you look at a company like TikTok, which is focused on public sharing, there, I think, is a need for companies that are looking to compete with TikTok to ensure that they're not just focused on private sharing mechanisms, but also on ways that people can share publicly. Sure, right. And there's growing recognition of competitive pressure by companies like TikTok and some of the other Chinese tech giants. But on privacy, Matt, would you say that over the eight years you were at the company, the recognition of privacy as something valued by people grew substantially at Facebook? I think it grew and people learned a lot, but it was important to the company from the start. I think that's kind of one of the misimpressions about the company. I mean, when 
Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he decided to include privacy settings. And that wasn't something I think that existed in most web browsers. It wasn't something that existed, you know, in most websites that you would go to. I think he recognized early on that enabling people to control who they shared information with would be an important part of the service. And some of the public issues around privacy that the company has had, those were things that were learning experiences for people at the company when they saw the way the product was used, if it was used in a problematic way, that was something that people would want to correct and address. I think a user-generated content platform that is a new type of platform will present new and challenging issues. And it's hard to imagine that pace of innovation and being able to foresee everything that would occur. And I think there have been use cases that have helped the company and helped other companies to understand how to develop a better product that people like more. Sure. And we all learn from experience, companies included in that. There was one other thing that Mark said that struck me. Mm -hmm. Let's take a listen. People having the power to express themselves at scale is a new kind of force in the world. It is a fifth estate alongside the other power structures in our society. And you know, people no longer have to rely on traditional gatekeepers in politics or media to make their voices heard. And, and that has important consequences. And I understand the concerns uh, that people have about how tech platforms have, have centralized power. But I actually believe that the much bigger story is how much these platforms have decentralized power by putting it directly into people's hands. So about that bigger story that Mark refers to, have we competition folks overlooked or not given sufficient mm. weight to the value of Facebook's size and scale as a vehicle for challenging political power? I mean, that being something antitrust <laughs> at least originally was concerned with? That seems to me to be undeniably true. I started at Facebook the same week that Egypt shut off the internet. And so one of my first jobs was to help work on the company's communication statement about how we felt about a government deciding that people would no longer be able to use the internet for a period of time. And that was certainly a central event in defining my experience at Facebook. And I'm not saying that I thought the company was able to do no wrong or that it wasn't evident that there would also be downsides of the technology, but it was pretty clear at the time the technology was going to be used in ways that are empowering. And I think it continues to be used in those ways. I mean, live video contributed to the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it undeniably did. It also was used by the shooter in the Christchurch shooting. And so those two things exist together. And I think the challenge of technology is like what happens when it is used for both good and for bad. And we could make the argument that we would just prefer to not have live video. We think the costs are too great and it's worth giving up the benefits because of those costs. But I think the current conversation often overweights those costs and underweights the benefits. And we think about how to constrain spaces for speech in ways that will rid the world of the use cases that we don't like. We're not giving appropriate deference or appropriate weight to the elimination of a bunch of use cases that we take for granted, but that are really important for facilitating important forms of expression. So my central operating thesis, I think, is that on balance, that more speech is actually good and that it actually is helpful for people who are disempowered traditionally and that more speech restrictions and constraining the way that people can express themselves will benefit incumbents and people in power and more powerful corporations, more powerful governments. 
I think it's conceivable that that's not true. I'm not saying that because I know that to be true. It seems like that is likely the case. I think that is the kind of thing that you could have stronger empirical research on to really try to understand for something like live video, how do the costs align against the benefits? But I think the current conversation and the incentives on the press side to report news in a particular way or consider certain events to be newsworthy events and on the policy side where there's such strong political incentive right now to highlight things that individual politicians believe to be problematic and then to use that to advocate and build political momentum. I'm not sure that that dynamic will lead us to an outcome where we've adequately assessed the costs and the benefits. Speaking of weighing costs and benefits, this has been the general nature of the exercise undertaken in the very many policy inquiries into the tech sector in recent years. Mm -hmm. And one such inquiry, of course, was the ACCC's inquiry into digital platforms, a matter in which you had some close involvement. So I want to ask you, Matt, from the perspective of a company like Facebook, how are such exercises seen as an opportunity to engage meaningfully or just with a sense of foreboding that here comes another round of inevitable criticism? I mean, it's certainly difficult to be criticized and to be criticized by government authorities, but it is also a helpful opportunity to explain how your business works. And I think in the course of the digital platforms inquiry in Australia, but also in engagements with other policymakers, I think we were able to explain some pretty key things about how we saw the business One thing, for instance, that continues to baffle me is the conclusion that Google is dominant in a market for search, Facebook is dominant in a market for social networks, and apparently those two companies never compete with each other. Because in my experience at Facebook, every single engineer in the company understood that we competed with Google, and every single person who sold advertising for the company understood that we competed with Google. And that was true on the day that I started at Facebook, and it was true on the day that I left. So competition authority is repeatedly framing it in a different way, at least in terms of how I experience things from within the company, seem to really misrepresent this fundamental way that the company operated. And I'm sure Google would say much the same thing, not just vis-a-vis Facebook, but Apple, uh, Amazon, and other members of the big four or five. But tell me a bit about how Facebook engaged with the ACCC team over the course of that inquiry. Uh, Were the framing of the issues by the ACCC aligned with the way in which they were framed by Facebook? Or was there a substantial gap that just was impossible to close? So I don't want to get in the specifics of our engagement with the ACCC, but I guess what I can say is the most fulfilling part of that process, which I think is the most fulfilling part of my career at Facebook, and I'm hoping it will be part of my life at Duke, it's part of what motivated me to want to join the Duke community, was the opportunity to talk in a deep way about different policy models for dealing with challenging policy issues. And so I never understood the framing that I thought sort of dominated a lot of the digital platforms inquiry that seemed to be about, do we give the money to the tech sector or do we give the money to newspapers? And if the tech sector is getting more of the ads, at more of the ad revenue, that's problematic and we should adjust so more of it goes to the publishing sector. I felt like that was underpinning the discussion and it didn't seem to make sense to me that government authorities should be intervening to try to shift revenue from one business to another. But I did recognize that there are challenging issues in the news sector and there may be different types of regulatory mechanisms or 
multi-stakeholder mechanisms that could help to address some of the concerns that people had about the experience that they had when they received news on a digital platform like Facebook. And so the idea that we worked on that I was really proud of and I thought was a helpful contribution to the discussion was thinking about a multi-stakeholder model for news where groups of companies who are digital news distributors, meaning companies that play a role in facilitating distribution of news or enabling people to share news, and that would mean social networks, but also app stores and news aggregators and other types of services that play a role in news, thinking about having those organizations work together to develop a set of principles to guide how they distribute the news. And those principles could include principles around integrity of news. They could include commitments around transparency. They could include commitments around control. Like, are you able to just make a choice to not see news from a certain organization? And when you make that choice, that choice will be respected by your digital platform. And then once those principles are developed, there could be audit mechanisms to ensure that companies are behaving the way they say they are behaving. And there could be transparency mechanisms so they could publish reports on how they're adhering to the principles or they could publish reports of complaints that they've received and how they've addressed complaints that they've received. And that is more consistent with other types of multi-stakeholder mechanisms in the tech sector, like the Global Network Initiative, which deals with business and human rights issues, for instance. And the process of being able to work on that type of thing, like develop those ideas, talk about it with policymakers and get feedback, talk about it with academics and get feedback, that was really incredibly fulfilling. And it was the kind of work I really most enjoyed in my time at Facebook. So is the model, as you've described it, something that would be a private initiative or are you thinking more co-regulatory? I think it could be either. My sense is that there isn't a lot of appetite right now for self-regulatory models and people want to see something stronger, but it could start self-regulatory and there could be sort of government oversight to ensure that it's working. And if it ends up not working, maybe there could be a robust co-regulatory mechanism that's put into place. But it seems to me like that's a better way to anchor a conversation around what is it that people want out of their platforms? Not what is it that publishers might want from platforms, but what is it that people want in the distribution of news to them or in their experiences on digital platforms when they're making choices about news they want to see or don't want to see? And then a mechanism to be transparent about that, to evolve quickly when there are changes in the technology. That feels to me to be a more constructive approach than something like an algorithms regulator. Sure, which we should say was abandoned between the preliminary report and the final report, (laughs) although there's some resonances of it left there in the final recommendations. It seemed to me that you had a nice seat in looking at the digital platforms inquiry. You're watching companies represent their positions. You're watching the government represent their positions and everyone's sort of battling it out. You're seeing the submissions go back and forth. One of the reasons that I was excited about moving into academia, I think, was after going through some of these regulatory processes, I hadn't gone through them very much before, so I don't know the extent to which the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry was similar to or different from other types of regulatory inquiries, but it certainly did feel to me to be shouting in response and shouting in response through the submissions process, through some of the public forums that existed through some of the statements made in the press. And the most satisfying things to me were the parts that felt more academic, working on a digital news distributor regulatory model, some of the deeper conversations we had either with academics or with people on the policy side. 
So then I was excited about having an opportunity to move into academia and spend more time in the depth doing deep work, I guess I should say. I'm also very excited to be able to have the opportunity to learn from the academic community that I'll be sitting in at Duke, but also from other academics in the field. So speaking about these regulatory processes, Facebook of late has been putting out its own proposals or ideas and thinking on regulation. I referred to the privacy statement a while back, but there was more recently a paper put out on data portability. This seems to me to be, at least on the face of it, a quite genuine effort to take a collaborative and proactive approach to the design of what now seems to be an inevitable tide of regulation relating to the internet. Mm -hmm. Did you find policymakers and politicians were receptive to that kind of input? So I think it depends. You asked the question earlier, how do you advise the company when sometimes the company's efforts to speak in its own voice are not well received? And I think there are lots of examples of the company's voice not being well received. But I think you're pointing to some other examples where the company has spoken in a really effective way. I thought the portability white paper was a great example of that. It was an incredibly hard issue where we, within the company, the competition team that was getting pushed repeatedly for data to be able to flow more freely out of Facebook into other competing services. The competition team was often in dialogue with the privacy team where they were saying, we are experiencing a lot of pressure to try to provide better protections and lock down the data more, particularly with regard to third-party sharing, sharing outside of Facebook. And so it presented a great opportunity to lay out some of the challenges of reconciling those tensions. How do we think about trying to share more, which might be beneficial from a competition standpoint, while also being privacy protective, which we need to do for privacy purposes, and to look in detail at what that might look like on the product side. And so I think the team that was responsible for developing that paper did an excellent job. And I think it's been well received because I think it was written with a significant amount of humility. It's a hard issue and the answers are not clear. And I think the company's desire to get feedback on what the right answers might look like was genuine. And my sense, at least until I left, was that it was being received that way, that it it was a productive conversation to have with policymakers and other experts in the field and try to get their guidance on how to be good on that subject. Yeah, what I really liked about it was that it set out a series of questions that Facebook had identified as questions this complex issue raises, then set out Facebook's thinking on possible responses to those questions, like what should be the scope of portable data and how do you weigh competing interests of the kind we've talked about, and then genuinely inviting feedback and other contributions to those questions. I Yeah, I thought it was really constructive. One thing I repeatedly felt working at a place, it was making affirmative decisions about products in the world where you decide to roll out live video and then you have the complications of having live video in the world or you decide not to roll out live video and then you don't have the complications, but you also are taking the benefits out of the world. There are costs to that decision. One of the things that I constantly thought about is there just aren't that many cost-free decisions. You're making determinations about which costs you want to bear in a world where every decision has downsides. And I thought data portability illustrated that. It's not really that hard to develop a system where the data is entirely protected. Or maybe I'm understating the difficulty. There are difficulties there, but you could try to optimize to maximally protect data. 
you also could try to provide maximum transferability, maximum flow of data out of the service to another service. What is very difficult to do is to figure out how to maximize the ability of data to go out of the service as quickly and easily as possible with as little friction as possible, while also maximizing protections. That's almost impossible. But if what you were trying to do is maximize privacy protections and you didn't really care about the potential competition benefits of free flow of data, then you wouldn't want to be in a middle space. You'd want to, you'd want to bear the competition costs to maximize the privacy benefits. And the reverse is also true. And so I think often there's criticism about decisions that tech companies make, and the criticisms are often very warranted, but I think sometimes there's not enough emphasis being put on what would be the downsides of a different decision and would we feel comfortable bearing the cost of that decision. And that takes us back to some of the themes we were talking about before. Just as we start to round up, Mash, I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned your interest in the interaction between academics and policymakers. Mm -hmm. What about the interaction between academics and companies? How did you observe Facebook's approach to this? And I ask, having regard to the concern that's been expressed in some parts of the academic community about funding by tech companies of academic research, how do you see this issue? It's a great question. I would also love to hear your answer to how you perceive the company's effort to work with academics, because it would be interesting to hear how you experience it from your point of view. The main thing was trying to find smart people who could provide help on difficult questions. So the one that we just were discussing about benefits of portability for competition versus drawbacks of portability from a privacy perspective, or at least in certain circumstances, drawbacks from a privacy perspective, that's a hard issue. And there are smart people at lots of different universities who can provide really helpful guidance on that. And so I found my conversations with academics when I sat within the company to be really gratifying and really helped me, I think, to be more effective in my job. And so I looked to have those conversations whenever I could and to try to develop trusted relationships with the academic community. I think when you're coming from a company, and particularly more recently as the company has been experienced more and more negative press, there is a skepticism. There are people who didn't trust me. There are people who disinclined to want to work closely with me. And I'm aware of that and tried really hard to show that I was a trusting person and a trustworthy person. So my observations that you asked for are these. First, I'm aware Facebook has this open program where it calls for academics to pitch for research grants on topics it's particularly interested in having the benefit of research on. And those who receive funds from the company receive them by way of uh, unrestricted gifts. I think that is a great initiative. I wish more companies would emulate it. And that's because, in my view, it's absolutely critical for academics to work not just with policymakers and regulatory authorities, but to work also with business to understand their very different perspective so I think companies that have programs like this should be strongly commended and encouraged. I think the great tragedy in some senses is that now uh, some academics might well be reluctant to take up such opportunities because there have been members of our community who have taken funding and not disclosed it. And as a result, there's now this inherent 
suspicion about the integrity of research done that's tech company funded, whether or not that funding is disclosed or not. And I think that's a loss and a tragedy for us all, frankly. I agree. One thing that I'm really interested in and want to try to have a dialogue with lots and lots of people about is just kind of what it feels like to work in this sector. And you can work in it from different perspectives. You can be on the staff of a member of Congress. You can work for a tech company. You can work for a nonprofit. You can be an expert at a think tank. You can work in academia. And I think it's helpful to provide a sense of you know, a fairly like intimate way of what it feels like to be in the sector on a day-to-day basis, just as someone working in the tech policy field. And you and I have found ourselves in a couple of rooms together, I think, throughout the digital platforms inquiry process. And I'm kind of curious when a company representative walks in a room, do people tense up if you're standing next to someone and you both got a glass of wine in your hand and someone introduces themselves as being from Google or being from Facebook or being from Amazon or being from a small up-and-coming tech company? Do you end up feeling more guarded in how you talk about things? Wow, that's really interesting. Speaking only for myself, no, not at all. And you know why? It's because on a human level, when you meet a person, they may have on their name tag Associate General Counsel Facebook or Government Affairs Google, but they are just another person. And that's why I think these face-to-face human interactions, whether it's at conferences or discussions around inquiries, are so valuable and so important. That's one of the reasons I did this podcast, because when you actually start to speak to the real, in quotes, people yeah. who work for and with these companies, you inevitably get a very different perspective and a different feel, if I can put it that way, which is important because... Coming back to where we started the discussion, Mm -hmm. with the hype and the villainization of the news presentations of the important issues we're grappling with, you can readily overlook that behind those reports are real people who very genuinely and very seriously want to work together to find the right solutions. Mm -hmm. So now some people are going to listen to me and say, well, that's wishful thinking or pie in the sky or... Nancy Pansy stuff, but that's how I genuinely feel. And I think the more opportunities for all of the various stakeholders and their representatives to get in the room together, so to speak, the better. Well, it doesn't seem to me that it's pie in the sky, I guess. And I guess the reason is that it may not be that every interaction is a fulfilling one or every interaction leads to a friendship or a new realization, but the openness to it means there's an opportunity for it. My happiest moments are when you have the openness to learning from people around you. And I say that as someone who sometimes doesn't have that openness, not to my credit, but when you have that openness to people around you and you are open to learning, that can just be so satisfying. And I feel like on the digital platforms inquiry, but on many of the things I got to work on at Facebook, I learned a lot from the people around me. I learned a lot from people we met with. I learned a lot from academic community in the US and in Australia and That just is such a fulfilling part of your job when you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And just now to round us up, although I suspect we could talk all day, Matt, is there a particular area or areas of tech policy that you personally would like to pursue in your new role? So I think the center will certainly cover competition issues since I focused on those issues in my last 18 months at Facebook. We'll also, I think, probably deal with issues like privacy and free expression perhaps election integrity, since those issues are so front and center. 
in the press and in the policy conversation right now. One of the wonderful opportunities that I have in starting at Duke is that my center sits within a broader initiative, science and society initiative, which is focused to date on more sort of life science type issues. And so I'll have an opportunity to work on those as well. So it's not just a center for technology policy. It's a center for science and technology policy. And you've got a particular interest in individual well-being associated with the use of technology. Tell us a bit about your plans to pursue that. That is something I'm really interested in. I may want to do research in it at some point. Right now, I think one of the things I'm most focused on is having conversations with people about it. I'm launching a podcast called Technology, Knowledge with a K, which will feature conversations with people working in technology and working with technology. And I'm looking forward to, as part of those conversations, asking people about their relationship to their tech products. I don't know how these conversations will unfold, but one thing that I'm wondering about is whether people have really strong feelings about their devices and about the apps that they use. And they have those feelings on a personal level, like feeling compelled to put their phone on a dinner table or sleep next to their phone or respond to text messages they receive in the middle of something where they they really would prefer to have more distance from their technology. And those emotions and feelings about their relationships to their devices color how they think and feel about policy proposals, whether that is breaking up large tech companies or strong privacy legislation, or they want pop-ups notifying them about cookie activity. I think it's possible that those two things end up getting commingled in a way that ends up being unhelpful. And I wish that there were broader spaces for people to talk about their relationships with their devices, like whether they have a tech Sabbath at home and put their device away for some period of time. Those types of tools that people use to put themselves in a position where they feel more in control of their relationship to the technology around them. And I'm hoping that that kind of opens up some interesting dialogues that is separate from the conversation of what legislation do we want a government to pass or what are we comfortable with an antitrust enforcer doing? There was a lot of food for thought in that. At least I thought so. Some of you may not agree with everything Matt had to say, but for my part, it's hard to quibble with the argument that it's essential for tech policy dialogue to consider the costs in regulating as much as the benefits. Not to mention, we need to think carefully about how we regulate, as much as whether we regulate at all. And in having that dialogue, I hope you'd also agree just how valuable open, balanced, inclusive conversations are. Conversations that cut through the noise and the hype that so often attends the accounts we get in the press. It's conversations like these that this podcast has been all about. And I am profoundly grateful to all of the guests who've been prepared to join me, to join us in sharing their perspectives through the show. You can find links to Mark Zuckerberg's Georgetown speech, Facebook's privacy statement, and data portability white paper, as well as the Center for Science and Technology Policy at Duke University at competitionlawlore.com. Oh, and look out for Matt's podcast, Technology That's Tech with a K. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. <laughs>